Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 90 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm here in the Vomitorium, as always, with my co-host and good friend, Dr. David Noe. Hi, feeling, Dave? I'm feeling odd, let me say that. Odd. Yes. Okay. I was listening to a podcast recently, Yes. and the individual being interviewed said, I am super excited. Oh, I'm super excited to interview so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And the interviewee, guess what he said? What did he say? He was super excited to be interviewed. It's a lot of excitement. There was excitement all over the landscape. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, that is not the podcast I want to listen to or deliver. Did you Did you shut it down immediately after no, that? No, I listened to it because I was interested in the topic. Yeah. But there was no excitement. There wasn't? No. I mean, on my part, yeah. they were feigning excitement. But So no actual enthusiasm? No, not it? really. It was okay. an interesting topic, but okay. everyone was super excited. All right. How are you feeling, Jeff? Super excited? Uh, not now. <laughs> uh, not anymore. Uh, I'm feeling good. You know, we're back in the vomitorium after a, uh, a little bit of time away. Yes, it's been a hiatus, Yes, to use a Greek word. Uh, two uh, weeks. Two weeks. Yep. So um, I am a little bit excited to be back okay. in here. Okay. A little excited. Back from a long road trip with my family, which was which was great. Yes. Uh, but it was, uh, it was not necessary relaxing. This isn't excessive banter yet, is it? it I don't know exactly. <laughs> I'll, we'll leave that for other people to decide. You know how I threw in that word hiatus? And, yeah. And I said to use the Greek? Yes. That was deliberate misdirection. It was? It's not a Greek word. It's a Latin word. No. What, why did you... It, I was just, trying to see if anybody's paying attention. I think you got it wrong and now you're correcting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping for some hate mail. Someone to, you know, pedantically uh, write in and say, um... Dr. Noe, hiatus is not a Greek word, it's actually a Latin word. So you're just you're just kind of stepping up and I'll be, you're getting in people's faces. That's now. right. I'll be the pedant tonight. <laughs> so you're not feeling excited or enthusiastic, you're feeling pedantic. Pedantic. Okay. That's all right. right. All right, all right. Yeah. But you were on a nice trip with your family. It was. You it went was. down and you saw the um the the what the gravesite of Colonel Sanders, Harlan yeah. Sanders. Exactly. That, I mean, I don't want to mislead the audience in saying that was the goal. We, it would be for we, me. We drove out of town to find the the founder of KFC's grave. Yeah. So to be only yeah. a little irre- irreverent. Yes. Is he buried in a, a large? Um, white and red striped <laughs> cardboard bucket if, if only uh, he has a, a fairly sizable ornate grave it's kind, huh. of, kind of a, a kind of a, a creepy bronze statue of his head with a side of coleslaw uh, the, <laughs> uh, the fact that he he founded kfc is is engraved on the on the tombstone it's a man i admire uh, greatly yeah yeah well part of the the uh, the um the reason for the trip was i'm studying you know very interested in urban legends yes that's right and i'm very interested in how, kind of how people interact with kind of sacred places, spooky places, liminal spaces. Uh, and so I wanted to bridginess. visit... Bridginess. I wanted to visit a number of uh, famous graves along the way to kind of to see how people pay homage. So I'm thinking you got your university institution to pay for this. I, they, they did pick Aha, up part of the tab. That's I see. Exactly it right. was a junket. It was a junket. Yeah. It was a Kentucky Fried junket. Yeah. So we, we went in search of Warlock Willie in Ann Arbor. The, okay. Uh, we, uh, the Pope Lick Goatman in Louisville. Don't know that one. Yeah. Uh, these, I mean, they're... Uh, they're fairly obscure, but mm. fascinating to visit these places. And then in the same cemetery that Colonel Sanders is buried, Muhammad Ali is there. Oh, yeah. And we went to uh, a cemetery. Did you know he lived nearby here? Barry in Springs, Michigan. Did he really? Yes, about, Tor- about an the hour end of, and a half. Towards the end of his life? Last 20 years of his life, he lived in Barry and Springs. What's he doing there? Uh, I don't know. He was retiring. Okay. 
Uh, he's originally from Louisville, you know, mm. group, you know, Cassius Clay there, and so right. he, he's and uh, still his his name is all over that town, and he he left a lot of money and foundations back there. Yeah. So I think that made sense that his his body would go back there. Right. Um, his grave has a little receptacle, and it, it, almost as if you know people are saying, "Yeah, we expect you to leave tokens behind." Interesting. And, yeah, and so it was interesting. So, uh, so the Wright brothers' grave in Dayton, and and um, dragged my children to lot, all these historical places. It was fascinating. Yeah, you went yeah. on a cemetery tour with your kids. Yes. So no theme parks. Nope. No. Um, did you buy them ice cream or? The, Eat any junk food, there or was just plenty, one cemetery? Way too much junk food and ice cream along the way. But okay. we, we did some spelunking. All right, uh, took them to Elvis's house, Graceland. You know, which mm-hmm. is you know people leave all kinds of stuff behind and write on the walls. And, right, and um, the the Civil Rights Museum where you know Martin Luther King was was assassinated. And mm. The balcony is still kind of frozen. As, Incredible. As it so it was a lot of the a lot of the stuff we did was kind of fell under the banner of pilgrimage. Um, which I found endlessly fascinating, and that my kids got into it too, and my wife enjoyed it, so it was successful. And I understand on the way back, mm-hmm. it was uh, the lovely Mrs. Winkle who insisted that you stop at the Concrete Parthenon. We did. We stopped at the Concrete Cement Parthenon in Nashville. I I I know a little uh, hint of dismissiveness there. No, it's envy. I've never seen it. You've never seen? Okay. I've lectured on it extensively. Yeah. And I've been through Nashville more times than I can count. Why haven't you stopped? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really impressive. It's the great. Dis- the dismissive tone is toward the American aesthetic. I see. It's not toward the object. Gotcha. I'm right. I'm proud to be an American. I'm I'm glad to be an American. Yeah. But the the concrete Parthenon is quintessentially American. Yeah. Right. Let's make something fantastic, but let's make it cheap. Let's make it cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It We're was, such a pragmatic people. Totally. And I mean, so the the building itself is is a little over. I think maybe 110 years old. It's already fallen apart. No. No. They have no net, they have nets up at the corners catching the falling the falling crumbling pieces. But right. as a as a monument, as a kind of one to one scale replica, it's impressive. Right. And now they have inside the you know the full scale forty foot statue of Athena, uh, which for a small fee you can go inside wow. and, and, and look at. And so it's a it's a it's a way to experience that building that you you know you simply can't you in, can't. in Athens, Mm-mm. right? No, uh, the um <clears throat> the contrast here for me is with the Duomo in. Uh, Florence, right? Because it was built and it stood without a dome for more than a hundred years. Yeah. They said, we want to make this massive structure, but as to how to enclose it, no idea. No Let's idea. just build the first part of it. Right. Completely it, unpragmatic. Unpragmatic, but but so confident. Exactly. They say, okay, we're, we don't know how to cover this now, but we will. We'll figure it out. And, it, and then and along comes Brunelleschi, right? That's right. Um, call, yeah. call back to Ross King, right? Ross King, exactly. So yeah, I like that. I like that comparison. But you're right. The 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 Nashville Parthenon. It's you know at a glance, it's oh that's very Greek, right? But it's also deeply, exactly. it's deeply American. Very pragmatic. The other thing that's yeah. interesting to me about it is Nashville apparently wants to be the Athens of the South. That's one of its nicknames. Exactly. Right. And if I but if I were Athens, Georgia, you know what's left <laughs> to me then, right? <laughs> Athens, Georgia. I mean, also a college town. Right. right? What, what are they going to be? The the Nashville of Georgia? I don't know. Well, I mean, they're famous for you know a lot of great bands. Came yes, out of that's there. right. REM and, mm-hmm. and uh, well, bands anyway. What's that? Bands anyway ba- came out of there. Yes, bands. I removed the adjective. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's talk classics. Let's talk classics. Right. Well, we have been a little bit, but let's. Oh, you're get right. It. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, we need our shout out though. Right? Before, yes. we, before we dive into this. And this fellow sent us a tome. For us, it's kind of, um, what, what's that expression where it's either, oh, feast or famine. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. It's probably Shakespearean. For us, it's either feast or famine. Right. We either got no shout out or we have huge, cumbersome shout out. Exactly. And he kind of took us to task. He right? did. Because so of, let's read it. All right. Yeah. So 
Um, Let's oh. not reveal his name until the end okay. so that the sense of shame can build. Right. So he starts out, in a few recent episodes, I was surprised to hear there was no shout out. I confess I was reminded of the Seinfeld episode. Okay, he knows how to... He's, tr- he's trying to get to us, right? right exactly, yeah. right. Pluck our heartstrings. Reminded of the Seinfeld episode where George wouldn't date a woman because she was balding, him being bald, or the one where Jerry finds out Newman dumped the beautiful woman Jerry is dating because she wasn't his type. So what's he, what's he trying to say here? I don't what, quite get that part, but let's stick with it. Okay, all right. So that, oh, he's explaining himself. Like you're saying, he's trying to butter us up. Right. That is to say, I was a little surprised that a pun, a Tolkien quote, a reference to my liberal arts alma mater and a Latin staple from the Reformation were insufficient to get a nod from the vomitorium. Well, apparently he sent us all these things. Yeah. And we completely forgot about them. Right. Well, okay. I guess bad, bad uh, on, on our, us, our, on us I, I suppose. Mostly on you. Uh, I guess I'll take the, the blame here. Yeah, mostly on me. It says, truth be told, I, I typically err on the side of brevity. I don't believe that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this goes on for pages. Yeah. As I try to avoid being a me monster. Are you glad that I put it in a three ring binder? So <laughs> exactly. Carried it to the vomitorium for you. Exactly. I mean, I had, to, I had to lug that thing down the stairs. Right? <laughs> that being said, um, I can add that I was a history teacher who now, for better or worse, sells industrial components. I hope it's for better. I hope who so. Who wants to buy a bad industrial component? No, exactly. And, and they would be hard to sell, wouldn't they? That's quite a, a left turn, though, in terms it is. of career switching. Mm-hmm. Right? He says, may I continue? Yeah, please do. I taught four years in Christian schools with Western Civ being my favorite class to teach. Mm. The Battle of Thermopylae was definitely a huge hit. Mm. Shall we pause here? Um, Lion at the Gates, episodes yeah. one and two? Yeah. Way, I, way back around the 20s, something think, like that. Do you that. think he let, did this guy listen to this? I doubt it, but I want other people too, yeah. and that's the point. <laughs> right. <laughs> On a, let's see. Yeah. Uh, over the semester, I required my students to engage in a set number of civilizing activities, e.g. attend a play, listen to a symphony, eat a bucket of fried chicken. No, I guess <laughs> I just added that part in. And oh, that ad nauseum had existed at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. On a personal note, I regularly sing the Beatitudes in Latin to my children in Gregorian chant. Wow. This guy does it all. Suffice okay. it to say, I am very thankful for ad nauseum's weekly offering of the humanities. I believe the recent episodes on Virgil have been some of the best on the podcast. Oh, interesting. Okay, great. You want to continue on there? Sure. He says, the ample supply of Latin and English readings have been really enjoyable. However, I do count myself among the few... Uh, the not-so-happy few who listen to the Troy episode. <laughs> so as regards a shout-out, like humble Priam beseeching the body of Hector, I oh, make hold my on, appeal. Hold yeah, on now. What, what, what? Hold on now. Uh, should we reveal his name? Okay, let's do it. Grant, Priam did not beseech the body of Hector. That's right. The body of Hector was dead. I warned you I would be pedantic tonight. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> he beseeched Achilles... For the body of Hector. Yes. All right. Yeah. He didn't exact, He didn't directly address the body itself. No. Right? No. That would, no. That Grant. Come on, Grant. Right? Okay. Like the Im, uh, importunate widow, I plead my case. Ah, see, scriptural reference. Yeah, Guys, just dropping them everywhere. He's laying it on thick here. Uh, and it doesn't end. No. Like the bold Syrophoenician woman, I retort that even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the. Ad nauseum table. Oh, nicely That's done. That's well, he put it. He put a lot of work into he, this. He did. Yeah. Nice. So I, mean, I, I, I tip my cap. Yes. Yes. And then he, he uh, concludes with this valediction. Yeah. Soli Deo Gloria, a little bit of Latin. Grant Hayden, P.S. This is the P.S. This is the P.S. De la Resistance. Yeah. Bring back the brackish tang. <laughs> That's the part that really made you happy. Right? I love that. 
<laughs> we need to get that put on a t-shirt. Bring back the brackish tang? That's correct. Yeah, exactly. Two scoops stirred into some water, and you got it right there. That's brackish right. tang. That's right. Now, he says bring it back, but I, I feel like it never really went away. Well, if we, we kind of left it We aside. made jokes about not talking about it, but then we always talked about we talk it. talk about it by, by not talking. We don't talk about it by talking about As it. As is right? our want. Yes. Whoa. Okay, that was a long introduction. Yes. Yes. But well, most you, you took us all the way to Athens, at, Georgia, and back. And to the Athens of the South. That's correct. That's right. So, it was. I mean, we're in the classical classical field, so I don't feel too bad We about apologize it. to no one, Winkle. Right. All right, so we're, we're talking about, we're back into the Aeneid yes. uh, tonight. And we're starting what uh, I think is arguably the most famous Definitely. Part, uh, book four. Uh, the, the 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 romance, the dark tragic romance of the uh, of the of the epic. And yeah. what goes better with dark tragic romance than yeah. popcorn? Popcorn. All right, let's talk a little popcorn before we dive into the subject. That's tonight. correct. Yeah. So Pop City Popcorn is our newest sponsor. They're located in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and popcitypopcorn.com. That's where you want to go. Popcitypopcorn.com. Check mm-hmm. out their large selection of delicious popcorns. Right. They've got the two-way drizzle. They've got the rainbow, which, as the name implies, is a just a beautiful array of colors. It's a sweet popcorn. I'm more of a savory guy. Mm-hmm. I like the bacon cheddar. I like the Parmesan. Nothing on the popcorn is a powder. It's all real grated cheese. Fantastically delicious. Yeah. Everything I've tried from them has been great. I imagine there's a lot of people out there like me who think, what's popcorn is popcorn. Yeah, I can make popcorn at home, I, they might or say. Or I can even buy that fancy you know, box of the bow-tied guy. Yes, right? the jacker crack. The jacker cracks and make it home. So why do I need to do this? And I was kind of of that mindset too. Mm-hmm. And this stuff was amazing. Yep. It's a it's a cut above. It's If you love popcorn, this takes it to the next level. That's um, right. Yeah, like, like Dave was saying, uh, the, the sweet side, the savory, savory side, they have it all. Uh, go to popcitypopcorn.com. Um, Check out their offerings and, um, yeah, sample some. That's right. And if you enter this coupon code, ANPOP20, A-N-P-O-P-2-0, you'll get 20% off your first order. It's a great deal. Check it out. All right, Dave, you have our opening quote tonight, I believe. That's correct. So tonight's opening quote comes from a book we've uh, referred to before. This is the uh, book by Brooks Otis, Virgil, A Study in Civilized Poetry, published by the University of Oklahoma Press, 1964. Would you say that if... um if you were to suggest to the audience you're going to pick one book about about the Aeneid, about Virgil, is it the Otis book that you would, yes. would nod towards? Okay. Absolutely. All right. It's revolutionary. The best book on the Aeneid written in the 20th century. Okay. No doubt. Uh, other books that are worth considering is William Anderson, Art of the Aeneid, a much slimmer volume, but some really keen insights in there. Okay. And then, of course, our buddy uh, Conte, Jean Biagio Conte. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a, a handbook of Latin literature, but his insights are equally startling and significant. Fantastic. Well, give us Otis's quote here. Okay, so this comes from page 265. The narrative of books two and three has shown to Dido and to us the nature of of Aeneas's destiny and the consequent impossibility of his denying it. But it has also shown the dolor and furor, the pain and, and anger, the black despair, the absence of initiative, the dependence on Anchises, that together made Aeneas so exceedingly vulnerable to all that Dido represented. Hmm. Book four, however, seems at first only to carry on the emphasis on Dido, the empathetic identification with Dido that had already been established at the end of book one, remember at the end of the banquet scene. Right. But the long narrative had intervened, and it is therefore with some sense of shock that we turn from the Aeneas of books two and three to the Dido of the first line of book four. And this is the Atre Gina Grui Yam Dudum Sauki Akura, which we're going to talk about, 
which basically means that she, that is uh, Dido, was nursing this heavy care deep within her heart. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean, as I was reading book four, I mean, one of the things that that struck me um, again is this kind of these almost sometimes like casually brushing aside this notion of this um, this fate that must come true. Right. So I think we can forgive Dido a little bit. I mean, she's not clued into this, but on from Aeneas's point of view, um, like Otis was saying in, in books two and three, this this idea that this fate of that Aeneas must reach Italy is you know it's come from the mouths of so many different people, you know, different oracles, different different signs, different omens. Um, but suddenly that seems to be kind of going goes all out the window, right? Because uh, Dido is love struck. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, Otis goes on. I'm just going to summarize real quickly. Uh, why indeed is the emphasis of book four so wholly, so almost exclusively on Dido mm. and her tragedy? Why does Aeneas display such scant initiative, yeah. give so much the impression of a man driven by forces outside himself? We can make two answers, which in a final analysis amount to the same thing. The first one, Dido is obviously an alter Aeneas. Okay. And that's, that's the first one. We can unpack that a little bit. Okay, okay. The second one is... There is another and more fundamental reason for Dido's prominence and Aeneas's passivity. It is that Aeneas's absence of initiative in the book is itself a revelation of his moral failure, of his culpa. He hmm. is caught and temporarily lost in the tempestuous passion of Dido and in his own passion for her. In this sense, the book's domination by Dido is a clear index of Aeneas's weakness. That's really interesting. I, find, I mean, I find that very persuasive. I mean, we've talked in the previous episodes of Aeneas's... Uh, passivity. He's a he's a maddening hero type because he, because under this burden of fate, he can't really make a move, so to speak. That's right. And so in book four, you know, where he more or less in many ways just kind of disappears. Yes. I mean, he's fundamental to the narrative. He has to be there. Right. But um, he doesn't drive the action in dr any way. Exactly. Exactly right. And so in some ways, this this just draws you know a thick underline. Um, of of Aeneas's kind of lack of, of heroism. That's right. Now you could explain it as I think as a moral moral um, failure, uh, but you could think you could also kind of explain it like he's a plaything. Yes. Well, this is one of the reasons why I think people don't like the character of Aeneas, as opposed to say Odysseus. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure it's a fair analysis. And I think Otis has put his finger on something, and that is, in order to make this transition in Aeneas's life plausible. Dido has to take the initiative and has to take the lead in book four. Hmm. So Aeneas has to recede into the background somewhat as a character. Yeah. And this is how Dido is an alter Aeneas, right? She is a second Aeneas. She has already set up the civilization right. on the shores of uh, the Mediterranean there in Carthage. She is more manly in a sense, according to traditional heroic archetypes. Mm -hmm. uh, she's driving and building this civilization. She has spurned suitors, you know, like Yarbus all over Africa. Yeah. Uh, she is the one that you're drawn to naturally for um, heroism in that book. And uh, it's her downfall that spurs Aeneas on to, to do what he's supposed to do. Right, right. And, and I think that, yeah, very well said. And I think that in some in some part, um, you know, Dido belongs to a a Roman tradition. She, in some ways, she reminds me of kind of a Lucretia, exactly, right? Um, a, kind of a, a heroic, but almost, but also kind of suicidal, right? Uh, a female character, yes, monomaniacal, uh, yeah, She's totally obsessed, right? In which we don't see a, I don't, there's not kind of a clear corollary in the Greek corpus. I mean, there's, there's something very Roman about Dido. That's true. Yeah. Although um, many, you're right, but many um, scholars have pointed out that Book Four is Virgil's opportunity to have a, a mini tragedy. Hmm. He's drawing on 
the motifs and emphases of Euripides especially. Hmm. And so you're going to write an epic, but he sneaks a tragedy in there like, in, in I see book that. four. Yeah, so I mean, there's... So there's, Dado has some of those reminiscences. She's, there's a Medea there. Correct. And, and I mean, even, even Sophoclean, I mean, there's there's um, you know part there's parts of Antigone right. in her as well. Okay, yeah. But not to anticipate the end of the book, spoiler alert, I think everybody knows. Do they? Do, does everyone know that Dido commits suicide? Well, now they do now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she does so in a very un-Greek fashion because all of the Greek women, um, Phaedra, Right mm-hmm. in the Hippolytus, and of course Dracasta, yeah, and of course Antigone hanging, right, 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 right. And so the mode that Dido chooses to fall on uh, her lover's sword, this is not Greek. This is Roman. It's, like a, you're it's saying. a soldier's death, exactly. Right? It's how you know how Antony died. Yes, it's right? how um, Cato the Younger killed right. himself, right, right, falling right. on a sword. Yeah, yeah. There's so many kind of interesting kind of playing with with archetypes and expectations and. And as I was rereading before, I mean, a question that kept popping back in my mind is like, you know, how would a Roman audience have, have read this? Right? Yeah, I think I, I'm speculating here, but I imagine they would, of course, have been drawn to the character of Dido, but with a really strong love-hate relationship. Yes. This is our arch enemy, right? These Carthaginians, these are the people we beat up in, in three wars. And now Virgil, Augustus's poet, is making her into the heroine. Right. And the guy that we admire, Aeneas, he's, you know, a milk toast. He's, he's, he's doing nothing. He's so, much in the, he's so much in the background. Right. That that in and of itself I find fascinating. I mean, one thing I was thinking about, you know, uh, that I think um, I know that I think back in ninth grade we were reading like, uh, you know, there was anthology of like ancient readings in yes. my mythology class. And I remember reading kind of a, a watered down version of book four. And I was, th- I was thinking, well, you know, why is that book, you know, if, if there's going to be an excerpt from the Aeneid, it's almost always this book and then nothing, right. nothing else. And I think a lot of it has to do with um, uh, the, the, ro- the romance of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the, the, in the, kind of the tragic romance of it. There's aspects of what happens between uh, Aeneas and Dido that I think are all over you know, Disney films. Right. And it got me to thinking of, of that, that I think Virgil kind of, I think he does it very well. He's because his finger on kind of how... Uh, I'm going to get in trouble here, but broadly speaking, women behaving in these kinds of situations oh. and, and men behaving in these kinds of situations. And, you know, you're in trouble. Winkle. I know I'm, I'm, I'm going full steam with it. But All so, right. You know, so, you know, women, broadly speaking, kind of following their emotions, uh, leading with their emotions and men leading with more kind of a black and white cost benefit analysis okay right? even in romance even in romance right huh. you so you want to get a lot of hate mail I, 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 do, I do exactly okay I, I'm, I'm i'm taking the baton from you all right you wanted the beginning <laughs> i want it now too and but so i wondered if 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 uh but if would a roman have recognized that kind of romantic aspect in the same way that a someone primed by watching disney films right. would recognize and i don't know if there's the I'm just kind of I'm thinking aloud here because I, I I wonder okay what would a Roman audience have kind of picked up on kind of that room that romanticism in the mm-hmm. same way that we would today? It might be similar. I, I'm I, reminded of the the Duke's Famine Facti quote, which is from this book, right? Yeah. Or maybe it was in book one. It was book have, one. Yeah. yeah. A woman was in charge of the whole shebang. Yeah. Right? She was in charge of the whole operation. So there is a sense of um, Dido stands out among women. She you know violates a typical gender role, you might say. Yeah. Um, something else that strikes me when, when we're talking about pop culture, I was trying to think of an analogy for this effect it would have on the Roman reader uh, to see this, this romance between Aeneas and Dido. And I remember the, the amount of literature that I read as a child about uh, the Native Americans or the Indians. Mm-hmm. 
and how fascinating I found their cultures. You know, the diff- I studied the different tribes here in Michigan and the Sioux and, and um, in the, the New England states. I read all that stuff. Yeah. And at one time, of course, they were presented as subhuman at, at one point in the, in the history of this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, at other times, though, they have been treated like the noble savage. Yes. Right? Oh, right, right Something yeah. very much out of Herodotus. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that is that people unaffected by culture and civilization have a nobility and an honesty that the civilized don't. Exactly. So that's what I was drawn to, right? So I'm thinking, how would a story like... Um, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull at um, the Battle of... Little Bighorn? Little Bighorn, yeah. right, with uh, Custer. Custer. Right. So the, the end of that story is the underdog. Um, it, it's not the case there that the victors write history because all of the sympathy, really, is now on the other side. Right. Right? It's not for Custer. I don't know anyone, even those who might say, well, it was a necessary military operation. There's no sympathy in it. Right. It's all on the side of those who were eventually the losers, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But what Virgil is doing seems somewhat different because all of your sympathies are drawn toward Dido and then she loses and she's pretty much out of the story. And she's, it's done. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> she makes a brief cameo in, in, the, in the in underworld. Book six. Right. But I think that's kind of what's unsatisfying or dissatisfying to the reader. Dido is so built up as this better and larger than life character, better than Aeneas, and then... She dies and the story goes goes on like yeah. it was supposed to. Yeah, yeah. It's very different. It's like a, a, a twist ending that kind of causes the, the audience to kind of you know, jerk their head around and say, wait, wait, what just happened? Right. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time developing that uh, Native American analogy. Does that is that land at all? Did that make any sense? Yeah. Oh, oh, I mean, that's, I mean, broadly speaking, that's something I'm fascinated with too is if you look at um, it, uh, when I teach my film class. We talk about um, you know the development of the Western, right? And in the earliest Western, you know the cowboys are the are the um, the heroes of civilization to tame the savage, right? right? And then somewhere along the fifties and sixties, you get the flip, and it kind of culminates in like Dances with Wolves, or even right. a film like Avatar, mm-hmm. where the forces of civilizations are there to plunder and to mine and right. to make money, and it's the it's the forces that are closer to nature that are inherently spiritual, yes. or inherently good. And that's a really old archetype. Like I mentioned, Herodotus yes. it goes back to the notion of the the noble savage. Yes. Yeah. I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. As you know, it usually does. Yeah. There were, so, so to speak, good guys and bad guys on both sides. Right. Right. Uh, but I think then the Roman audience, is Aeneas uh, the good guy? Is is Dido the, the bad guy, so to speak? Right. Um, yeah, I know. I think, I mean, I think Virgil, uh, to his credit, he, he leaves so much of that kind of stuff on the knife edge. And I think so it makes it so interesting. Another thing I thought of, too, is that you know, given when Virgil is writing, um, you have a kind of proto-Roman, uh, you know, kind of flirting with a foreign queen. Um, they had people oh. have to see Cleopatra. Of course, right? this is Antony and Cleopatra. Antony and Cleopatra, right. 100%. Mm-hmm. And so that had to be a, another layer, which again makes it even more complicated. You could take that in a whole other direction, mm-hmm. too. And you know, okay, what's he trying to say politically? Right. right. Well, because Aeneas was traipsing around, was traipsing around uh, Carthage with a purple cloak on, right? Yeah. Just like the reports of Antony was, you know, lounging around uh, the court in Alexandria in full velvet, right? Dressed in full velvet. Was it velour? Velour. Velour. I think he said something like, you know, if it were socially acceptable, he would drape himself. I would drape myself. <laughs> That's right. That was Mark Antony. So, yeah. so Aeneas is the, is, has, is the Eastern dandy who's been taken in by this uh, troubling uh, queen, this foreign queen. Right. And even in this book... Um, 
when uh, and I'm getting ahead of things, but when Mercury Mercury comes down to basically say, "Hey, you can't stay here. You got to move on." He finds him building uh, uh, Dido's towers. Someone else's city. He's wearing a Carthaginian cloak that she gave him. Yes. He's gone native. Yeah, he's got the T-shirt that says, "I'm with stupid." Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on, snap out of it. Get back to work. Right. That's what Mercury is saying. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Now. I don't want to patronize the audience, but right. just in case I'm willing to there, do that. there are some some you know more newbies um, that are listening to this. Um, of course, part of the, the larger scheme that Virgil is is up to is he's setting up the enmity between Rome and Carthage. Right? Correct. This, so this set this is this sets up um, what the tragedy that happens between Aeneas and and Dido lies in the background of of Hannibal. Three right? world wars. Three world wars. Right. right. That consumed the Mediterranean. Right. And which makes it even the more more striking, given that. That uh, the book also uh, gins up so much sympathy right. for Dido. You would you would think you know um, that on some level you would think okay, Virgil's got to make these people monsters right. Right, to, to justify what the Romans had to do with them. But no. he does not do that. A very sympathetic portrayal, right? And of course, since you patronized the audience, yeah. and I said I was willing to, let me do that a little bit too. Go for it. All right. So we're talking about these three world wars between uh, Rome and her allies and Carthage and her allies. So this was the first Punic War, started in 264 B.C. Uh, then the second one is the Hannibalic, right. 219. I think it ended about 202, 204, 202, uh, with the Battle of Zama, right, with yes. uh, Scipio Africanus yes, in, yes, yes. Uh, in North Africa. Yep. And then the third one, this is the uh, Carthage Must Be Destroyed of uh, Cato the Elder, mm-hmm. uh, started in 149. Poor, poor Cato was already dead. Yeah. He didn't really get to see oh, Carthage bad. destroyed, all right. his hopes. Uh, 149 and ended in 146. Okay. So so very short. Kind of reminds me of the Godfather trilogy to some degree. It is like that. Yeah. And I think we've said before, no movie has ever been made on these three massively interesting events. Are you sure about that? The- Relatively. Okay. In fact... Grandfathers who fought in the first Punic War, their grandsons fought in the third one. It was a, a three-generational conflict spanning all of the Western Mediterranean and some of the Eastern. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The yeah. stories in it are incredible. Incredible, yeah. Hannibal. Remember we were talking that Vin Diesel was going to play Hannibal at one yes. point. Yes, yes. That'd be, that'd be perfect. I don't know. You don't think, you don't think so? Well, the, the Fast and Furious on an elephant? <laughs> It would definitely be kind of a uh, a, a flighty action uh, uh, version of this, which I have no problem with. I have no problem either. Have I have I told you about the uh, when I lived in Chicago the uh, the Bud Light mirror that featured Hannibal? No. <laughs> so when I would walk to catch the bus, uh, there was like this junk shop, and featured in the window there was a kind of this um, these mirrors with kind of a, a, a pasted picture on the front of it. Okay, right? so um, you're supposed to look into it and see yourself? Kind of like that. It was just 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 a really hokey, cheesy kind of thing. Right. But this was from a series of Bud Light salutes like great men of history. <laughs> and, and, and I should have got this because it said Bud Light salutes great African Americans. Oh, no. Hannibal of Carthage. <laughs> <laughs> And and the picture could not have been worse. It was like you know, it was a sub-Saharan African with the bones and so the, it was and the nose. Not oh, Hannibal. No, no, it was. Oh, it, that is really it was, awful. It was awful, and I really it, I kicked myself for not buying that stupid thing. Very tasteless <laughs> and beyond tasteless. Could you laugh at it? it? I just every every time I saw it, I just shook my head because wow. it was so ridiculous. That's incredible. Yeah. Um. But back to back to Carthage and Dido and Aeneas. All right. 
So um, at the opening lines, we learn that Dido is, she's fallen for this guy, head mm-hmm. over heels. And uh, Virgil uses the language of, of, of sickness, of, yes. of, of being wounded. Of course, the most famous epic simile is the wounded doe that, yes. that wanders through the city with the arrow struck from afar. Yeah, I don't know if we'll have time in this episode to talk about it, but we will be addressing that at some point. Absolutely. Um, but at the at the very beginning, you know, Dido is uh, she's she's love struck. Um, she's she's hurting. She's she's completely overwhelmed um, in the presence of this of this guy, and um, a lot of time is spent. Um, Virgil spends a lot of lines um, talking about how, how Dido is. She said, "I swore never to marry again." Correct. Given what happened with her with her uh, her first husband, Sicaius. Right. And which we murdered by her brother Pygmalion, right? Which we talked about, I think, in in one of the in the first episode. That's of, right of, of the Aeneas, and but not just that, but talks about how she swore this on the powers of the underworld, right? I mean, this is a the, serious yes. vow. The ashes of her dead husband, right? It doesn't get more serious than that. And if we remember that, and one of the things that we've talked about a lot in these in these last episodes is, is this focus on. Being religiously correct, doing right. the right rituals, doing right by the gods, and respecting those powers. So this is not just some kind of. It's a great point, uh, and it's, it's not something that we can take lightly. And right? you, you had a certain sense of irritation with Aeneas. Do you have to perform? Do you have to perform a sacrifice every hundred yards? Can't can't we get the show on the road? Exactly. It got it got to be a little much tedious, but it does underline, I think, um, a very important thread throughout the epic here. And so when Dido was saying, "I know I swore that I would never marry again." But this guy, right. um, it's not just uh, – I think that's where you have to kind of set aside the, the Disney romance and say, no, a Roman would say, this is serious business. Correct. You don't, you don't break these kind of vows, no. right? Um, but it's her sister, Anna, that comes to her and says, listen, what, you know, what, do, the, what do the dead care? You yes. know, why, you know, why, you know, why would the dead be worried about this? She provides a plausible justification right. for Dido to do what she already wanted to do. Right. Right. And, 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 and it leads me to start to think: um, Is Dido? Does Dido really have agency in this in this mm. in this episode? Does she really make the choice that she does, or is she just again like an alter Aeneas? Is she yep. also kind of just a, a puppet in the hands of fate? Of Juno, also. Right. Right. But let's uh, let's read some Latin. You okay. want to read some Latin here? Yeah, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give the Lombardo translation. That'd be excellent. I'll yep. start out in line nine. Ana soror quae me suspens insomnia terrent. Quis novus hic nostri sucesit sedibus hospes, quem se sor referens quam forti pectorat armis, cred equidem nec vana fides genesese de ordrum, de generes animos timor arguit hel quibus ille, iacta tus fatis quae bel exhausta canebat. Very nice. You, know, you, always, you always read that so nicely. Oh, you're very kind. Yeah. I enjoy it so much. It's the, maybe the most beautiful, other than Greek, maybe the most beautiful poetry ever written. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. So Lombardo translates that, and I'll read a little bit beyond that just to give a bigger picture. Um, this is Dido speaking. He says, Anna, my nightmares would not let me sleep. This guest who has come to our house, his looks, the way he carries himself, his brave heart, he has to be descended from the gods. Fear always gives, way, gives away men of inferior birth. What the fates have put him through at sea, the wars he painted, fought to the bitter end. If I were not unshakable in my vow never to pledge myself in marriage again after death stole away my stole my first love away, if the mere thought of marriage did not leave me cold, I might perhaps have succumbed this once. And I must confess, since my husband, poor Sicaeus, fell at my brother's hands and stained our household gods with blood, only this man has turned my eye. Only he has caused my heart to falter. Mm. So she's she's wrestling with this, correct? Um, and I think that the the subtext here, and, and we learn later uh, the details of it. A lot of guys have stepped up 
and saying uh, and wanted to courted her courted her right so she's there's a bit of kind of penelope in her as well absolutely right? she's a reverse penelope yeah she is a reverse penelope and so um she seems to suggest that lots of guys have come to to, to offer a marriage and she hasn't given them no the the time of day nope but he she he this all Nias is the one guy who has kind of made her think differently. Yes, only this man has turned my eye. Mm-hmm. Only he has caused my heart to falter. Right. Now, he, it, it's, you know, and he is in his passivity. He hasn't really done anything. No. But he's told a very interesting story. That's correct. Right? Of his heritage, his lineage. He's good looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but speaking of reverse Penelope's, yes. it's time for the ads. <laughs> This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee, these uh, the makers of these wonderful machines that we both, both Dave uh, and I have. Um, I can't say enough about them. I used my Ratio Eight this morning. Yes, and it was it was great. I have the hand blown uh, borosilicate carafe. That's right. Which pours like nothing I've ever poured from before. That's right. This, the, the even the pouring the coffee is a, is an act of art. <laughs> yeah. uh, even my Gra- wa- gravity assisted. Gravity gravity assisted. Yeah. Even yeah. my wife, who's not generally impressed by that kind of stuff, she's she's um, she's very taken with this mm. machine. Um, what do you like about your ratio? Well, I didn't actually get to use it this morning. What? No, I didn't. The, the schedule, the time, maybe that's why I've been a little bit off. That maybe I that didn't get it. my ratio eight ritual, and so I went and had coffee somewhere else. Oh man! Don't, were, don't tell Mark Helweg. Were you at the uh, Blarstucks again? <laughs> no, but um, I used uh, one of those L cups. I think it's called one of those L cups. L cup? It's a little plastic dingy thing, and you stick it in the top, and you pull the lever down. Oh and yeah, yeah. The light yeah. comes up, and you wait, and I got gotcha. you, cheapo, right? <clears throat> I was not impressed. Maybe that set my whole day off. I think that I think we've pinpointed. That's it. it. Yeah. But my ratio eight, sitting uh, lonely at home on the counter with its um, oyster color steel aluminum and its walnut accents, yes, was waiting for me when I got back. That ma- that made you feel a little bit better. Yes, it right? did. Yeah. yeah, it's a work of art. It's a beautiful thing. Right. And uh, winning awards all over the landscape. Uh, this is a, a really highly rated. You can you can look in Wired. You can look in the. New York Times. The first place I found it was I was reading the Wall Street Journal. This was um, spring of 2019, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, I saw Ratio 8, top 10 all-time uh, luxury coffee makers. And I said, wait a minute. I know the guy who made that. that yeah. That's my friend Mark. And I contacted him. And I said, you're in the Wall Street Journal. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And uh, since then, you know, it's just been all great coffee. Yeah. So. Yes. Uh, so the ratio eight. There's also the ratio six, which is an, uh, also a, um, a slightly less expensive machine, but still. I think we more attainable is the term. More attainable. Right. Yeah. Um, which is a fantastic machine. I, I had it at one point. I had the had the, the weighty carafe that yes. keeps the coffee warm for hours without the right. scorch pad underneath. The Kindle brick. Yeah. The Kindle brick. You you had the aluminum, right? Yep. I had the aluminum. But it also comes or the stainless steel. I mean, stainless say, steel. Right. Right. Also comes in a, a black and a white. So three colors for the ratio six. The ratio eight is a huge number of options. Right. So, listener, if you're interested in this, uh, go to ratiocoffee.com. Um, take a look at the machines, and if you if you if you choose one, you uh, can type in the code A N C O A four, and they will get fifteen percent off either the six or the eight. Either the six or the eight. And then you might say, "Come on, guys, I I priced that coffee machine. It's not that attainable." Well, I understand, right? But if you're drinking coffee every day and you're paying what five fifty to seven fifty at um, Barstucks or yeah. somewhere like that, yeah. put this at home, and you know it's going to really pay for itself because the quality of the coffee is higher, 
and you'll never buy another machine again. That's very true. Yep. So this code ANCOA4 will be good through the end of July, and uh, get uh, yeah, um, queue one up and get yourself fifteen percent off. This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you, good folks, by Hackett Publishing. Hackett has offices in Cambridge, Ma, and Indianapolis Inn, and they have been publishing high-quality classics translations for 50 years now. This is their anniversary. 50, 50 years this year. This year, yep. yes, the quinquagesimal year. Yep, fantastic. I love Hackett Publishing. I've used their books for um, for years. I was using their books even before I really knew they were from Hackett Publishing. Right, right. right. I was as well. Right, there would be those things that would kind of show up in your, in your uh, mailbox. That's right. And say, hey, consider this. Yep. I studied from their uh, translation of Descartes' um, meditations when I was an undergrad, and then I got to teach from it. It's a, a thin volume, inexpensive, high quality scholarship in that thing. And that's just one example of many. Yeah. Um, I, I love the, the artwork and the layout. You know, I was you know, mentioning my road trip earlier. Right. And so I was at Graceland. Right? Oh, yes. Uh, the home of Elvis Presley. Yes. And I could not help but be reminded of the picture of Elvis on the front of the translation of Euripides Bacchae. Right. And that just that wonderful corollary of you know, Dionysus, the guy who shows up in town and drives all the women mad. Just Correct. Just like, like Elvis in 1954. That's right. Right. And sometimes mayhem ensues. Yes, absolutely. As it did for Elvis. Right. So much good stuff. I like the CDC Reeve translation of Plato's Republic. They got a new Aristotle series. Uh, and it's not just classics. If you like Latin American studies, Asian studies, they have uh, Norse studies. They got a star uh, in that area who's publishing a lot of stuff. And uh, we're just tonight using Stanley Lombardo's translation. And uh, it's it's excellent. It is really good. I am a really picky reader of literature and, and, and translating and so forth. And uh, there was one phrase in there, something like uh, neck, space, uh, wana, or something like that. It was not a vain hope. Mm -hmm. And um, Lombardo handled that perfectly, in my estimation. Yeah, so if you're interested in, in this translation we've been using for these um, on this last number of episodes, check it out. Yes. It's worth picking this up. Go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com. Browse around, drop some things in your grocery basket next yes. to your carrots and chopped tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And then at checkout, you will get 20% off and free shipping. If you type in the code AN2022. AN2022. Last year, the code was AN2021. Who knows what it will be next year? It's, we're going to keep that a mystery. That's right. That's right. So, Jeff, as we get back into it, it looks like we are actually going to get to this very famous epic simile yeah. of Dido struck by the arrow of love, you might say, right. like a doe. Right, right, right. Do you want to jump right there? Well, I think we should say how Juno is the goddess of marriage, mm -hmm. and she really arranges this relationship. The listener shouldn't forget the tie between Juno and Venus earlier in the epic. Right. They made this pact. They had different motives, different goals, but they used the same means to try to get them. Right. So Venus wants to get Aeneas to Italy and to fulfill his fate, as right. Jupiter has promised. And uh, Juno wants the opposite. Right. She doesn't want him to get there. Exactly. And I thought one of the, the most interesting things about um, Juno's role in Book 4 is that she uses the language of marriage, right? Um, she's going to get Aeneas and, um, and, and Dido together. And, and by doing so, she's going to keep Aeneas away from Italy, right? But uh, she uses the language of marriage, but she acts in such a very Venus-like way. She's kind of arranging what, I mean, when I read this, it doesn't sound like Juno is arranging a marriage at all. She's arranging a tryst, 
uh, between lovers, which would seem to fall much more under the domain of what Venus would do. Exactly. So she's, I think it, this is uh, I, Virgil keeping us off balance. Correct. And later Aeneas will claim, this was no marriage. We didn't get married. Right. It took place in a cave. Right. There was no cake. Come was- on. <laughs> Nobody caught a bouquet. Right. Dido sticks to the claim that, well, yes, it was a marriage, right? Mm-hmm. The, the goddess was there. The torches were lit. So what if it took place in a cave? You're abandoning me. Yes, exactly right. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to move to take a slight detour. Here, okay. Uh, because this whole concept of, of uh, you know, how you know, a Roman audience would have seen love or understand kind of the romance of this, uh, as opposed to how a, a modern audience would, I, I find that kind of very interesting. And so, um, you know, on the one hand, we have um, in this book uh, or in this epic uh, the very religiously correct um, um, themes. Uh, Dido has made these vows that she's never going to betray the memory of her husband. Right. But at the same time, Virgil is the same poet who is famously associated with the, the phrase uh, "omnia vincit amor," right. love conquers all. Right. And um, and so I thought that you know I you you will hear that phrase as kind of an you know as an axiom as kind of a, a proverb, um, but it, it, can, it strikes me as a very Disney way of using it in, in the modern parlance. Right? I see what you're saying. Right. Uh, but if it you, doesn't mean love wins in the end. Right, right. Right. But that's how most that's how people Correct. take it. Right. Love as a good, a, a completely good and not dangerous thing that brings happy endings. Yes. So I went back to where that phrase comes from. And it okay. comes from you know, one of Virgil's eclogues. And um, it involves it's the words are spoken by one Gallus. Who has he's lying dying of love sickness because um, his love uh, licorice in the poem has has cheated on him or, or left him right and Apollo comes from him and says hey what's your problem and it's very clear that when Agala says the love conquers all things he's not saying it in that kind of Disney princess no. kind of way it's Apollo that comes to him and basically says this is part of your insanity right you're crazy mm-hmm. and so I thought that was really interesting if, you know in the in Virgil's context. It almost means the opposite. I think that the key here is that the the verb wink it, if I can get a little philological. Please do. I promised pedantry. The verb winko winkere, right? In English, the word conquer is not uh, always bad. It's morally neutral, right? Mm. You can say, I I conquered Mount Everest. You can say, you know, I I conquered this room. So it's it's broader. But the Latin verb winko winkere um, has more of a sense of domination to it. Ah, than the English word conquer. Yes. So it's in it's in some ways a mistranslation. Love doesn't conquer everything. Love uh, almost you could say almost brutalizes or yes. um, crushes. Yeah. It crushes everything. Now I know kids today are saying, uh, you know, how'd your test go? I crushed it. Yes. Right. I killed it. <laughs> it strikes me as odd. All these violent metaphors for really mundane things. Right. Right. Did you get the table cleaned? I killed oh, it. I crushed it. Exactly. Exactly. Hold on now. <laughs> but in any event, I think that's the key. And you're right. Wink it does not mean uh, it overcomes so that there's a, a goodness that pervades. Yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. like that. So what would the, if it were to mean love, you know, conquers all things in the terms, in the way that we t- right. would what, what word would you substitute it would, there? It would have something to do with to, to placate or to mollify, like uh, placa placara, right. brings peace to, makes peaceful, right? Yeah. The, the omnia yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, would be something, omnia placat amor. Right. Love calms everybody down. It, it, it brings happiness. Or something like um, a later verb, beatifico, right? It, it makes happy. Yeah. Something like that. Right. But not winko winkera, because... The primary um, 
context for that is the military, yeah. of course. And then it, it extends into other things, right? But love doesn't conquer all things in the same way that... Well, love does conquer all things in the same way that the Romans destroyed Carthage. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. When they when they wrecked it in 146. Right, so when Apollo comes to Gallus after he says this and basically says, you know, what are you doing? Why are you acting so madly? Makes perfect sense with, exactly. with that Roman concept of Winko. He's saying, I, I can't resist love. Look at what, look what love did to me. Right. Basically the idea. Yeah. Well, it reminds me, I think that um, even perhaps the most famous uh, you know, pithy Roman phrase, carpe diem. Right. Um, which we, you, you know, most people say, what does that mean? Let's say seize the day. Right. But carpo is really more kind of like pluck, right? It's right. more, it's more kind of a, it's like a gentle, you know, agricultural metaphor. Right. You're not, you're not grabbing that grape, no. right? You're, you were just gently removing oh, it from I see the what vine, you're saying. Right. right. And so I, that's also, I think, uh, uh, a, a, a really quite bad mistranslation of carpe. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you totally. I, okay. was, I was trying to think of what uh, the Epicurean original is, uh, Lothabiosos, something like that. Live casually. Live casually. Some, something like that. Uh, <laughs> I think I think that's what it is. But I agree. Seize the day. Doesn't capture it. It doesn't. All right. Well, let's get back to, let's get back to the Aeneid here. Okay. So, um, uh, yeah, so Virgil, uh, Virgil gives a Dido who is... She's um, she's haunted by her vow. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to forsake her husband. But she's also really moved by this this new guy. Her her sister Anna has basically told her, no, hey, listen, go for it. Um, I mean, what do the dead care about these kinds of things? Exactly. And then we get this very famous simile, where um, Virgil likens her her love or lust or whatever's going on um, right now to a kind of madness, um, and she likens Dido herself. To a wounded animal. That's right. She's like a doe who has been shot by a Cretan hunter deep in the woods on the island of Crete. She is unwary. The arrow lodges. The shepherd or the the hunter has no idea that he's actually struck the creature. But the creature then goes raving through the forest, through the Dictian forest, and that lethal shaft clings in her flank. Yeah. This is Dido, right? Right. Love is a wound. It's a passion. And one of the good interpretations of Virgil's take on love is that, like Ovid, love is something from which you are to be cured. Yeah. Both the Stoics and the Epicureans had a view of how to, you know, heal the disease of love. Mm-hmm. They they differed in their prescription, you might say, but they both thought of love as something that was really dangerous, and you didn't want to always have it. Yeah. You wanted to try to get out of it if you could. Right. And I, I, I'm sure part of that is related to, um, you know, a kind of a tenor of stoicism. Too, mm-hmm. right? You're, you want to be the master of your, your passion. Yes, right? love takes over. You can't do what you want to do. Exactly. You're a hostage to your own emotions. Exactly. I like the detail in the simile where um, he, she's sh- uh, shot by a shepherd who has no idea where the arrow has landed. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, that's perfect for the passivity of Aeneas, right? Correct. He doesn't, in some ways, he doesn't even know that he's shot an arrow. And isn't this how love sometimes works? In truth, you know, someone is in love with another person, and they have the other the person has no idea exactly that right. it has taken place. Right, and some it may be very shallow, but it's no, it may not be based on you know friendship and shared interests. It could just be looks or a casual glance or a stray word or something. Right. But for the person who's experiencing that passion, it could be very strong. Exactly. Even if the other person is completely unaware. I think it's like anybody who's gone to high school would read this and say, I, I know what that's about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Either themselves or they've seen their friends go through it. Right. Right. So there's something kind of... Grab your friend by the shoulders. What are you thinking? You know? <laughs> exactly. Well, I don't know. It's... Right. 
Or you, she you, looked at me, so. I passed her the note that said, do you like me? Check yes or no, right? <laughs> uh, so I think there's something universal here. I think, I think everybody right. recognizes that. And I think that's probably why book four gets the excerpt. You're right. In all the You're anthologies, right. yeah. Not to go too deep, but, you know, she saved a place in line for you, right? Oh, it's, it's destiny. We're it's supposed destiny. to get married. <laughs> exactly right. You see the future in one Correct. in one grand she vision. saved a spot for me in the lunch line. <laughs> yeah. But it's Ovidian also, yeah. right? I mean, this is some of your notes here, which I think are very, are very on point. Uh, in what sense would you say that this, this simile is like Ovid? Well, it, I mean, her being sh- shot by the arrow, I think, you know, in... Um, I think that you know it, certainly a, an original audience could not have missed the you know, the metaphor with, with Cupid, right? She, and it reminds me of the famous Apollo and Daphne episode, which we've talked about on, right. on the show. And um, when when Cupid has his way, Cupid um, gets what he wants, right? Right. And so that 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 raises question: I mean, does Dido really have any choice here? Does this simile seem to suggest that she's shot by? Uh, the the sharp gold tipped arrow. Well, she's still a willing participant in what fate does. Yeah. That, yeah. that that's my conclusion. I guess so, right? You don't have to believe it. But <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, you see that a lot in 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 Homer as well. Right. You know that that kind of that the double causation. Right. The gods drive what the people want to do. Right. Um, fate. You know this idea. Also, you know, uh, Aeneas is going to wind up in Italy. That's fate. Mm-hmm. But what happens between point A and point B? There's a lot of free will that can take place. Right. So I think a lot of that kind of falls into that same camp here. Because there are the fates in the El Camino. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Rolling around. That's right. Yeah, deciding yeah. what people are going to do. Exactly. So as we keep an eye on the clock here and we start to wind down to the inevitable end yes. of this episode, we have a major scene shift. We do. The camera swoops up to Olympus. Exactly. To a snowy Olympus where Juno approaches Venus and seeks a truce. She does. Right. And so, um, this reminded me too, I think another slight Homeric nod. This kind of reminded me of Hera approaching Aphrodite. In Book Fourteen of the Iliad, for sure, basically saying, "Listen, can I become you for the day?" Right, right. And so, so uh, audiences have seen this before. Now it's, it's, it's a, now it's a very different kind of scene, but just that the setup, right? I think would have would have uh, kind of rung some Homeric bells. Should we try that someday? What's that? That when we do this podcast, we switch roles. I become the fun-loving pop culture maven, yeah. you know, good cop, and you become the grumpy pedantic. Bad cop. That's a, a episode one hundred. Maybe that's what okay. We do. Yeah, it's coming up. Can you do an impersonation? Uh, I'll I have to work on it. In All the, right, in the mirror. Yeah. So yeah, the scene shifts, um, and so a Juno, Juno says to Venus, "Okay, can is there? Can we uh, come to some kind of mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, agreement here? Um, you want to read a little Latin? Here? I do. Yeah. Yes. A Gregiam. Let's see. I should start over. This is line ninety three for those of you playing the home game. Mm-hmm. Line ninety three, book four. A Gregiam vero laudet spoliam plerefertis. Tuque puerque tu us magnet memorabile numen, una dolo di wum si femina weekta duordrest, nec mareo falit veritam te moinia nostra, suspectas habawisa de mos cartaginis altai, sed quis erdrit modus aut quo nunc keritamina tanto. Wonderful. Thank you. As always. Um, Can you give us some of the Lombardo translation? Yeah, Lombardo says, yeah. uh, So again, this is Juno speaking. An outstanding victory. What a memorable display of divine power by you and your little boy. That's her Cupid. Um, two devious deities laying low a single woman. Your fear of Carthage and your suspicion of its noble houses hardly escapes me, my dear. But what to what purpose? Why are we at odds? Why not instead work out a lasting peace sealed with a royal marriage? There's that word. You have what you want. Dido burning with love. Her very bones inflamed. I propose, therefore, that we rule this people jointly with equal authority. 
Dido can submit to a Trojan husband with Carthage as her dowry. Mm. Now, here too, I mean, Juno is, she knows the fate. Correct. Or she knows what must happen. What is she doing here? She's still going to try to cheat the fates. So is, You've got to try because that, that's her character. Again, is, that, is, is it that point between – is that that space between point A and point B? So I'm just going to drag it out. Exactly. So I know point B is coming, but at least I can push it into the future. Right. It's like in a sporting event. Okay. You, you watch a sporting event, play at a sporting event, and it's very lopsided. One team is obviously going to win. There's not time left. There's no way. Right? Yeah. The uh, the Detroit Bulls are beating the Chicago Pistons by hundred to you know seventy five and there's thirty seconds on the clock. Yeah. If you're a professional like Juno is, you play out those thirty seconds. You try to score some buckets. Right. It's always a little disappointing, isn't it? It is. When you know they uh, they they kneel down for the last twenty plays mm-hmm. during a football game. It's true. Come on, you're getting paid millions of dollars. Play it out. Right, it's a part of the game that my dad always called garbage time. That's right. It's just nothing but garbage time. Right. Right. So yeah, and this so is garbage I, time. I think that's what Juno's doing. <laughs> she, she knows she's beaten, but she's a professional. So she's not gonna, you know, take a knee and, and count down the clock. She's gonna she's gonna work it out. Right. And and she, she I think it's also that she says, Well if I can't ultimately win, at least I'm gonna embarrass my my rival. Exactly. The other really interesting thing about this is the person who proposes the compromise is always the weaker party. Mm-hmm. Venus has the upper hand. Juno is the one who comes to her and says, hey, let's let's work this out. Well, you know that she's the weaker party. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's just a basic rule of negotiation. That's right. right. Okay. It's yep. negotiations. Venus suspects a ploy. And what about fate? Does he want a union of Tyrians and Trojans? Yeah, Jupiter here comes off. Uh, and we'll probably get to this in the next episode. But Jupiter's—he's like the—he's like the lazy uncle on the couch who, who just doesn't really want to be bothered right. by this. And somebody wakes him up and says, "What? what what's going on? Yeah, work it out." Then Mercury, go fix this. Exactly. Right? We were gonna, you know, <laughs> Uncle Joe. We were gonna order pizza. Should we go? To, you no. guys just just here's my wallet. Figure it just out. Do it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> doesn't have to be a process. <laughs> right. Get in there and take care of your business. Right. So Venus says, oh, she kind of plays along, right? right? And then, uh, but she says, well, how, how is this going to work? And Juno says, I've got it all planned. Right. And she says, "There's these uh, the Tyrians and the Trojans are going on this big hunt, um, as you do. Right. The next day, and she's going to. As aristocrats do. That's what they do for sport. The fox hunt. They hunt. The English, right? That's right. You've watched Downton Abbey. Uh, no, I haven't. You've never watched any I Downton I, Abbey? I think I tried one episode and said, this is not for me. I'm surprised you didn't ask me because it's pop culture and here I could score some points. Right, 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 right. In any event, this is like the Downton Abbey. They're going on the big fox hunt. The big fox hunt. So Juno says, when that happens, I'm going to rage for a big storm and it's going to separate people and it's going to drive these two young crazy kids into a cave. That's right. And that's where the marriage will be solidified. And this is like a Hollywood or Disney moment. It is. This is very Disney. Exactly, because you have... Dido and Aeneas walking backward into the cave and they bump into each other and turn around with surprise. Right. What are you doing here? The violins swell. That's right. They're both soaking wet. And they look at each other's eyes. And, and it's, it's kismet. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very Disney at this point. And I think that's why a lot of people love this scene. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think, Jeff, we should actually wrap it up before it gets a little love boat here, don't you think? It's getting a little love boaty. I think so, too. Yes, right. But come aboard. We're expecting you, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think we got to leave this. This is the cliffhanger. Okay. We've got the two, the two young kids in the can, cave. Can we call it the cave hanger? The cave hanger. It's a cave it's, hanger. It's a cave hanger. Is a real uh, wedding going to be 
transacted? We don't know. Is it a marriage? Who gets to decide, right? Is there going to be more of a thing where there's Doc and Isaac and Gopher? I mean, the, you think the whole love group, boat crew is going to show up? Julie and Captain Steubing. <laughs> so like Juno is our Captain Steubing here, right? Dr- trying to drive the whole thing, right. steering the whole thing. Right. Yep. Right. Maybe in the next episode we can find corollaries for each of the love boat characters. How did that guy drive the boat if he was always arranging romances? He, 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 that guy was talented, right? He was always at, at the captain's table. Oh, man, that guy was everywhere. Gavin McLeod? Is that his name? That is his name, right. So yeah. you said I don't know anything about pop culture. <laughs> you know your love boat. We're going to test this next time. <laughs> All right. All right. But we're going to leave that there. Okay. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about you know, a marriage. What does it mean? Who's deciding if this is a marriage or not, and and how that really drives a wedge into the into the whole the whole machine here. So we got to wrap it up, don't we? We do. We got to get out of here. We haven't talked about uh, the Moss method for Greek. We haven't talked about my Latin courses. You've been strangely yet predictably derelict in asking me about those things. Well, can we get into those things? You seem okay. You seem a little put off. Oh, more than a little. Okay, right. Well, take some time and tell us about those days. Oh, would you like me to? Please do. Yes, if you're interested in taking your Greek from nothing to a lot. No, that's not how it goes. No, how does it go? It goes from neophyte to erudite. Ah, uh, yes. Then you should sign up for my course, Moss Method for Greek. Go to Moss Method, mm-hmm. check out my free instruction, and... Uh, for $325, you can take Module 1, 40 video lessons, 40 assignments, all of which I grade, and uh, quizzes, exams, and especially the Moffis hours. That, what, what's that all about? They get, to, they get to hang out with you, right? Yes, once per week we meet and we talk Greek, we read Greek, we study Greek uh, every Friday currently. It's usually about 10 a.m. on Friday. I have to move it around a little bit, but uh, it'll be 10 a.m. tomorrow, and uh, that's what we're going to do. So they have direct connection with you, but they also get to meet people Students. From, from around the world? Yes, huh? we got folks in California joining, and New York, and Ireland, and Australia, and uh, it's really just all over. Fantastic. It's, it's a lot of fun. So mossmethod.com. That's correct. You can check out. There's lots of free stuff they yep. can look at, and that's where they can sign up for Module 1. That's right. I've been teaching and reading, studying Greek for, oh, it's actually 30 years uh this year, I started in 1992 learning yeah, Greek. That's a that's an anniversary. It's, it's a long time. Yeah. So everything I've learned about Greek, I have put into this course. I don't give it to you all at once, but it's virtually all there. Fantastic. Now you also teach Latin. Yes, I do. This is the LLPSI, the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. Go to latinperdiem.com/llpsi and you can sign up for that course. It includes lots of great stuff, including an audio recording of the uh, Familia Romana book, chapters 1 through 9, uh, read by myself. If you just want to listen to that, it's a really high-quality audio recording that I put together with Mishka's help. That's a great way to learn Latin, but you also get weekly office hours, more than 21 instructional videos where I'm teaching real-life students. I think it's a real bargain, $199. You, you can't get on the love boat for $199. That is for sure. Not even back in 1977. No way. No way. Right. But, Jeff, we have some people to thank. We do. Thanks, as always, to Mishka, who puts this together, makes us sound better than we are. Uh, thanks to Scott Van Zen and Ken Tamplin for the great music you hear throughout in the beginning and at the end. Um, is there anybody else to, to thank you? Any other personal I don't think we need to thank Grant Hayden, who oh, gave us that wonderful that shout wonderful out. Shout. He's kind of, he's raised the bar. He has raised the bar right mm-hmm. there at the beginning. Yeah. And uh, if any of y'all would like shout outs, send them along. We'd like to, uh, you know, um, give you 
three, four, five minutes of, of a little bit of fame. We'd also like to make fun of you, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you can write to Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or to Dave at adnauseum.com. Also, again, don't forget the V. Yes. And coming up next week. More Aeneid uh, Book 4. Yes, it just, part two. It, it gets better. It does. Oh, it gets so rich. Yep. And uh, Jeff, I think you have the gustatory parting shot this week. I do? Yes, is you it me? do. Okay. It is you. And you're, right. you're probably going to find it a little lackluster. I, I queued this up for you. You know, I thought I'd help in a, yeah. in a tiny way. Maybe there's a little bit of an understatement there. Maybe we can make some frivolity from it. What do you think? Oh, or we can just kind of let, let it kind of hang there and, and echo. Like a matzo ball? Like a matzo ball right out there. So this is a Spanish proverb. That's what here, I'm told. Uh, translated into English here. Now, we should maybe tell the the audience that uh, Jeff has been uh, hot-stepping it for several months now. I've been trying to do This guy is racking up the steps on his pedometer. I am. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of steps per month. That's right. The guy's getting fit. He is, uh, when we go back on the video edition, you're hardly going to recognize him. He's, he's ripped now. I, I, yeah, totally ripped, right. But yes, I have been trying to to increase my, my stuff, trying to get that uh, at least 10,000 a day. And, and you're kind of on the bandwagon, yeah, too. Yeah, I've been and doing you've, a lot. you've turned this into a competition. I've been doing a lot of walking. I love to compete. Yes, I know you do. Yes, and uh, I think you beat me last month with right. your total number of steps. Yeah, you're, you're still not happy about it. Well, it's because the academic pastoral life is so healthy, you know, all that sitting and reading, I thought. <laughs> I may as well just walk a little bit. Right, right. So, so the, the proverb is in that vein. Yes, it is. And the proverb goes something like this. With bread and wine, you can walk your road. Yeah, that's nice. So next time I head out, I want to have a, a, a bottle in one hand and a loaf in the other. Uh, on, under your other arm? Yeah. Let's just keep, keep the wine out of the shoes, because I think you can't walk your road that way. No, no. It would be deeply uncomfortable. That would be awful. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.